Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now we've spent the last three weeks digging into Peter's teaching in 2 Peter 2 on false teachers, and this Sunday we are concluding that chapter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Before we dig into that text, though, I just want to briefly uh, remind ourselves of some of the things that we've learned along the way, some of the things about false teachers that we have discovered. Uh, First of all, we've discovered that there are indeed false teachers in the church, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament. Peter says there will be false teachers in the church. One of the things I've observed as a pastor is that when you're telling people things that the Bible teaches that they don't want to believe, they'll often say something like this. Well, I know you say the Bible says this, But other Christians say the Bible says that. How can we possibly know what the Bible really teaches? Now, one possibility for that difference is that the Bible is so obscure, it's just so inscrutable, that everybody who looks at it will see something different, and it's impossible for us to know what Scripture teaches. But Peter gives us another explanation. Peter has given us another explanation Uh, way of understanding this difference, and it has to do with the fact that not everybody who claims to speak the words of Scripture faithfully speaks them, that there are indeed false teachers in the church. That's the first thing we learned. The second thing we learned was how to feel about the presence of false teachers in the church. How should we feel about it? As it turns out, paradoxically, we shouldn't feel anxiety about it. We shouldn't be worried about the fact that there are false teachers in the church, because Peter says God will judge. He gives many examples earlier in chapter 2 of God punishing false teaching. He says, in the same way that God was faithful in bringing judgment to false prophets of the Old Testament, he will indeed punish false teachers in the New Testament. Not only does he know how to punish, though, he also knows how to rescue, how to deliver We don't need to feel anxiety at the presence of false teaching because God has promised that he will deliver his people. Last time we learned something else, which is where false teaching comes from. Like what is the, uh, let's say, the psychological, the spiritual origin of the false teacher's doctrine? And it seems to come from an ignorance, a blindness, a refusal to see the reality of higher spiritual things. That false teachers live the way they do and teach the way they do because they believe that this material world is all there is. That the corrupt pleasures of this life are the highest good that we can aspire to. And so we might as well live for those things. So we know there are false teachers. We know how to feel about it. We know where false teaching comes from. And now at the end of the chapter... We're going to think about why false teachers in the church is a problem. Why is this a problem? Why is their whole chapter devoted to this issue if God's going to take care of it? Why should we be worried about this? So with that question in mind, we're going to look at our text. A lot of times, 
We think about false teachers, and we'd rather not be the people who are calling them out. I don't know about you, but, but when I see people that are always going, oh, you're a false teacher, you're a false teacher, you're a false teacher, I don't know, that, that rubs me the wrong way. I think about all the mentors in my life, the people who have been like spiritual fathers to me, directly or indirectly. Uh, if I started listing names of people whose work has been influential in one way or another, uh, R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller, uh, John Piper, people like that, all of them have one thing in common, which is if you Google their names, you'll find out they're false teachers. <laughs> Every hero in the faith that you have has at least one website dedicated to what a false teacher is. So there's a, a, a part of this like calling out false teaching that, that's kind of uncomfortable, kind of something you don't want to do because you don't want to be branded as one of those people. And yet, we can't look at, at the, the, the teaching here and just shrug. We can't just say, well, why can't we all get, get along? But Peter is teaching us these things for a reason. So what is the problem? Why is it a problem if the church embraces or tolerates or makes room for false teachers? So with that question in mind, listen to Peter's words. We're starting in verse 17. He says, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So why is it a problem? Why is it a problem if there are false teachers in the church? I think the reason it's a problem is that false teachers in the church turn what is meant to be a refuge into a hunting ground. They turn what's meant to be a refuge, the church, into their own personal hunting ground. There is an appeal, an appeal to false teachers. False teachers can be appealing. If you're thirsty, then the sight of a spring of a well, that's encouraging, that's appealing. If the ground that you rely on is parched, then there's nothing you'd rather see than, than, than mist on the ground, storm clouds on the horizon, promising rain. But if the well is empty, if the spring doesn't flow, if the clouds that promise rain are driven off by the storm without producing, that's not good. And that's what these false teachers are like. Waterless springs, mist driven by a storm, they do not deliver what they promise. They raise hope, but then they don't fulfill that hope. So in these metaphors that Peter uses to describe false prophets, he puts his finger on exactly the way 
false teachers work and exactly the reason why they come under the curse. The appeal of false teachers is that they promise things that we're desperate for. The reason that they are consigned to the gloom of utter darkness is because they do not deliver what they promise. Jesus once, as he's walking along, encounters a fig tree that's not bearing fruit, and he curses it. And you read that passage, and you think to yourself, well, Jesus, that's a weird thing to do. It's just a tree. It's, it's not doing anything. I mean, some trees just don't, don't bear as much fruit as others. Why this curse? But we see in that story the exact same kind of thing that Peter's talking about here. That the raising of hopes that are not fulfilled, it's punished, it's cursed. The false teacher, by giving us hope that he cannot possibly deliver, comes under condemnation. Because what he offers isn't comfort, it's false comfort. It's false comfort. There are certain people that uh, Peter says are particularly vulnerable to false teachers. He says these are people who are particularly susceptible, and they're new believers, recent converts, those who have barely escaped from the temptation of the world, he says. They've fled to the church for refuge, and in that refuge they fall under the influence of false teachers. Like These are people who are particularly vulnerable to false teachers because they've come to the church for refuge. They're looking for something. And when they come, sometimes the loudest voices they hear are the voices of false teachers. Peter says false teachers speak loud boasts of folly. They let themselves be heard. They're not quiet. They, They do their sinning out in the open, he's told us, in broad daylight. They're not reserved. They're not keeping their... uh, bad doctrine secret. They are shamelessly deceiving. How can they get away with it? How is it possible for these false teachers, these people who are are teaching and encouraging things clearly in contradiction to Scripture, who are living lives clearly out of harmony with Scripture, how can they be tolerated in the church? It may be because not only do they speak the loudest, but also they offer the most. They offer the most. And what they offer is often the most appealing. If you've come to the church as a refuge, if you have escaped from the temptation of the world, and you come to the church looking for refuge, and yet it's still hard for you to accept some of the church's objectionable doctrines. There are still things the church teaches that are difficult for you to accept. Then there are false teachers here to tell you, you know what, actually, you don't need to believe those things. Those things aren't essential to Christianity. If you've come to the church as a refuge, And yet, there are some objectionable moral teachings of Scripture. There are some expectations that in the 21st century are clearly unrealistic. And that's an obstacle to you finding the refuge that you're looking for. There's always a false teacher to come alongside and say, you know, actually, that you don't have to abide by. That that teaching, it's not so much for today. Whatever the doctrine is that we find an obstacle, whatever 
the moral stance or conviction we find difficult, there's always a loud, boastful, shameless, false teacher there to tell us, guess what, that part of Scripture, you don't need to worry about that. That's not something we're expected to take seriously. It leads to an irony, which is that oftentimes the people most eager to learn are the most susceptible. You come to the church as a new convert. You don't know everything there is to know. Oftentimes, uh, you feel inadequate compared to those who've grown up in church. They seem to know all of these obscure Bible stories, and you need to catch up. And you certainly can't wait for the week-to-week pattern of, of, of church life to get all of that knowledge, and so you go elsewhere to find it. Used to be that uh, you could supplement your religious education with uh, radio shows and, and televangelist programs, and as a result, could be in a very uh, orthodox church full of very unorthodox teaching because you'd gotten them somewhere else. Now, false teachers don't have radio and television broadcasts so much as blogs and podcasts, but the same thing is happening. And so it's possible for us not only to encounter error in the church, but to dive deep into it and to become deeply influenced by it. As a result of that, the church that's meant to be a refuge for us becomes a kind of game preserve for false teachers, a place for false prophets to hunt. Peter says that if you've escaped the defilements of the world and entered the refuge of the church only to become ensnared once more, then the way you end up is worse than the way you started. Because the last state has become worse for them than the first. He's echoing words of Jesus. If you remember in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus talks about the idea of one evil spirit being cast out and then coming back and bringing a bunch of his friends with him to fill the empty space. And that the last state is worse than the first? And Peter's echoing those words. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them, he says. Which is an inconceivable statement for a Christian evangelist to make. Like it's better, he's saying, for some people never to have heard the gospel than to have heard it and to turn their backs on it. How can that possibly be? Well, for false teachers, it seems to be the case because once you have uh, entered into this refuge, once you have heard this gospel and now make a mockery of it and now turn it upside down, by doing this, you've abandoned the only hope there really is. You've blinded yourself to it. You've cut yourself off from your only hope of deliverance. But it's a problem also for believers who become ensnared in false teaching because it's difficult when you've been hunted in the church, when this place that was meant to be a refuge has been a place where where your weakness has been exploited. Once you come to realize that, it's difficult not to throw out the truth with the lies. One of the dangers for the church of tolerating false teaching within the church is the way that by mixing it in with the true, both become suspect. Both become suspect. If we make a mockery of the gospel, we make it difficult for people to hear it. 
if we go out proclaiming the truth and allow it to become an alloy with lies, then people are likely to throw out that truth along with the lies. That's why it's essential that the church is zealous for true teaching and that the church is careful not to advance false teaching. It's not out of a sense of exclusivity or a sense that we are the only ones who are right or anything like that. Rather, it's out of a conviction that the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a refuge for sinners. That it won't be that way if it isn't fashioned that way, if it isn't cared for, if it isn't cultivated. False teachers, Peter says, promise freedom. They don't deliver it. False teachers promise freedom, but what they deliver is bondage. One of the things I talk to my students at Worldview Academy about over uh, the summer is their freedom, and I tell them that they are not free to sin. I'm going to tell you the same thing. You are not free to sin. Usually when I say this, people have a certain reaction, and it's a little bit contrarian. They're like, well, actually, Mark, I am free to sin, and if we weren't sitting here in church, I would show you just how free I am. I get that. Um, I'm not saying that you're not able to sin. I'm saying that you're not free to sin. There's a little bit of a difference. What I mean is that the sin that you are very able to do is not an expression of your freedom, but rather the opposite. The great prophet of American individualism, Henry David Thoreau, says this, Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. Very American sentiment. It's it's a a line that often comes to mind to me when I'm on the highway, driving faster than man's law allows, which in South Dakota is really saying something because man's (laughs) law is, is pretty flexible here. You're driving along, you don't want to be like all of the other conformists in the right-hand lane who are just doing 80 miles an hour because it's the speed limit. You want to get ahead of those lemmings. You want to be an individual. You want to be your own person. You want to be free. So much of our idea of freedom is bound up in our ability to not follow the rules, not be conformists. We don't want to wear school uniforms. We don't want to fit the mold. Nobody wants to be like everybody else. We're encouraged to be special, to be individuals, to be unlike anybody else, original in every way. That's what it means to be free. And part of that necessitates sometimes disobedience. You can't just follow the rules. Nobody wants to just follow the rules. Somebody else made the rules, and to be free, to be individuals, We can't follow other people's rules. We've got to make our own rules in order to be ourselves. So we tell ourselves. This leaks even into our philosophy so that philosophically we we can't understand freedom apart from the ability to choose the contrary. I'm not free to do good unless I'm equally free to do evil, we tell ourselves. Without realizing But in defining our terms that way, essentially what we do is we make finite fallen human beings freer than God, who is incapable of evil, incapable of sin. This is not the way the Bible understands freedom. 
It's not the way the Bible understands sin. Scripture says that our sin is not an expression of our freedom. It's an expression of our captivity. In Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm not saying that you can't sin. I'm just saying that when you sin, it's not because you're an individual. It's not because you're free. It's because you're in captivity. It's because you are a slave to sin. And one of the tragedies of the gospel, the apostles tell us, is to be set free of that bondage and then to willingly return to it. To be set free from your captivity to sin and then choose to go back and say, put the shackles back on. I liked it better the way it was. That's a tragedy, to turn our backs on freedom. Of course, maybe it doesn't seem that way because Paul doesn't say that you were once a slave to sin and now you've become free. Paul says that now you've become a slave to righteousness. So it may sound like he's saying you've gone out of the frying pan into the fire. Right now you used to be a slave to sin, now you get to be a slave of righteousness. Yay! But when you consider what that means, it makes a lot of sense. When Paul talks about being a slave or a bondservant to righteousness, you're hearing that from a person who believes that as a human being, you were created with a purpose. Your purpose was to pursue the good. Your purpose in the garden, all human beings placed in the garden as cultivators, is essentially to give a faithful form to the raw material of creation. Pursue that calling in a variety of different ways. One of the things it means to be human is to be righteous, to be good, to bring about the good. So what Paul is saying is that the gospel frees us from the bondage of sin and gives us the ability once more to pursue who we were made to be. The destiny that was taken from you when you were put into bondage has now been restored to you. You can now be the human being God intends for you. Sometimes, though, that's not the gospel the church preaches. Sometimes that's not the freedom that we hold forth. Sometimes the church proclaims you're free to believe in the resurrection or not. You are free to pursue holiness or not. You're free to live according to God's ways or not. That's oftentimes the message that you hear, but that is not a gospel of freedom. It's a gospel of bondage. Whenever the church starts offering you freedom from God, freedom from Scripture, freedom from doctrine, freedom from holiness, instead of freedom from the curse of sin and the penalties, the condemnation of sin, its power over us, when the church offers you that kind of freedom, it's time to run. Because that's not freedom at all. That church, it's not a refuge. It's a hunting ground. And you will be enslaved. The thing you have to remember is this. Every snare is baited with things you want to taste. Every hook is baited with what you want to swallow. False teaching is appealing 
because it speaks to the sinful desires of the fallen heart. All of the strictures that seem too harsh for us, all of the truths that seemed a little too hard to believe, these snares tell us you don't have to believe those things in order to believe in Jesus. Which leads Peter to some pretty unsavory discussions of animal habits at the end of the chapter. Dogs in their vomit, pigs in their mud. What's that all about? Well, uh, this isn't savory at all, but it is, I think, sharp analysis, if you think about it. He's saying, essentially, that Christ is your purgative, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus will make you throw up sometimes. Jesus will make you throw up. You've swallowed poison. And one of the ways to cleanse that poison out of your system is to take medicine that will expel it. And poison is never expelled through savory means. Always unsavory. Because of the nature of what it is. The gospel of grace will sometimes make you throw up to get the poison out of your system in order to save you. Christ is a purgative. Christ also purifies you. As sinners, we find ourselves covered in filth that we cannot scrape off of ourselves. We don't even want to. Christ comes along and he cleanses us from that impurity. He purifies us. But remember what we saw last time of the nature of false teachers and how they live. False teachers, people who embrace false teaching, are human beings, Peter says, who live like animals. They've turned their back on their higher instinct and live instead like beasts. And how do animals live? Well, dogs, as as much as you may like them, they return to their vomit. Gobble it right back up. It's not one of the best things about dogs, but uh, it is true, and Peter points it out to us. He repeats the proverb, reminding us that this is so. This is so. Proverb 26 Verse 11, a dog returns to its vomit. You can wash off a pig, but all it's going to do is roll in the mud again. Peter's saying to you, you're better than that. You're better than that. God made you to be more than that. You're not a dog. You're not a pig. You're not meant to wallow in your filth or swallow your vomit. Anyone who encourages you to do it anyone who leads you into it, anyone who tries to make it seem like that would be a good thing for you, that is a false teacher. We fool ourselves in thinking that that is anything but ugly. The problem with all this false teaching stuff, though, is if you spend four weeks on it, you start asking yourself, am I a false teacher? When I read these descriptions... I don't cheer from the bleachers saying, yeah, Peter, get them, get them. They're all false teachers. I get nervous. I keep thinking, you should make this a shorter chapter, Peter. Move on to happier things because I start seeing things that I could see applied to myself. I think some of you may feel the same. You think about our church and whether or not our church is a refuge. Is it the refuge that it ought to be? Or this is the moment where you're like, "Eh, let's move on. We start to wonder about ourselves and whether or not we truly live up to Peter's expectations. I think that's the right way to feel about this. 
When Jesus at the Last Supper spoke to his inner circle and said, one of you is going to betray me, it's very interesting that these faithful men who, especially in Peter's case, were always willing to fight at the drop of a hat, they didn't say, Lord, tell us who it is so we can take him out back and beat him. Those pious men said, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Because when Jesus confronts you with the reality of false teaching, it's hard not to feel convicted yourself. It's hard not to recognize how far down that path we ourselves have walked. Now, if this church, if grace is going to continue to be a refuge, if this is going to be a place of real freedom and not just a dressed-up captivity, how are we going to keep it that way? What are we going to do to keep it that way? What do we need to improve here? What, what do we need to eliminate here? What sort of plans and programs is it going to take for us to become the refuge that God wants us to be? Well, here's the good news. You don't have to be a perfect teacher to point towards the true prophet, Jesus Christ. All we have to do to keep this place a refuge is to keep pointing to Christ instead of ourselves, which is a lot harder to do than it sounds. How do you point to Christ? How do you point to the true prophet? The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes Jesus' prophetic work this way. It says that Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Listen to that again. A true prophet does this, reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. We point people to Christ so long as we proclaim by word and spirit the will of God for our salvation and not our own. As long as the plan of salvation that we proclaim is the one that Scripture teaches and not the one that seems right to us, we're pointing people not to ourselves, but to Christ. Jesus himself, when he was tempted by the ultimate false teacher, didn't point to himself. He pointed to the Word, to Scripture. He quoted Scripture back at Satan when he was tempted. He pointed to the Word of God, and so must we. The church is not a refuge. It's because the cross of Jesus Christ is not planted at its center. If the church is not a refuge, it's because Jesus Christ is not the one who's being lifted up. The church is not a refuge. It's because the incarnate word is not proclaimed. The church is not a refuge. It's because the written word is not observed. The church is not a refuge. It's because the visible word, the sacraments, is neglected. But by God's grace, may it never be true in this place. By God's grace, may make this a refuge for his chosen exiles in this world. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.